It's real joy um, to be with you today as a family. Um, as uh, John said, we've got two kids, and um, having the second was a bit of a shock to the system, I'm not going to lie. I don't know how you guys are doing with three. And that lady with Lizzie with four, I mean. <laughs> Whew, I need to sit down. Anyway, we, um, me and my husband, Andy, recently went for brunch. Does anyone like a brunch? Yeah? I grew up up north in a town called Scunthorpe, which got a shout out earlier. We did not do brunch. Brunch was not a thing. Anyway, we were going for brunch and I was going to have avocado on toast. Again, never had avocado in Scunthorpe, not going to lie. Anyone have avocado every now and again for breakfast? Has it reached? It's reached here. Yeah, it's reached here. Um, anyway, so we go and uh, we ask for a table for two and a high chair and there's like 15 minute wait. And we're like, okay, cool, we'll wait. So we're chatting, great time. And they say, oh, Rachel, your table's ready. You're like, great. And the guy goes, um, didn't you say you wanted a high chair? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, where's the baby? And I said, Andy, where's our baby? And he said, where's our baby? He ran back to the car where he'd left our baby. So um, I'm just glad that Addy made it to church today. Um, that's, that's the difference between one and two children for us. Um, but John had explained, you guys have been in this series where you've been looking at the storyline of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture. And last week, you kind of came to that Jesus moment, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in which the whole story of Scripture culminates. He's the one um, who... Uh, fulfills all that has been going on. And in many ways, that kind of Jesus moment could seem like the end of the story, the, the culmination. This is what it's all been about. But what's really interesting is at the end of John's gospel, when we're told about the resurrection of Jesus, um, there's a few interesting details. We find Mary goes to Jesus's tomb and we're told it's in a garden. And when she's looking for Jesus, she sees the tombs empty. She sees someone and she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Jesus says Mary and she recognises that it is Jesus. We're told in all four Gospels that the resurrection of Jesus happened on the first day of the week. For those of you who've read Genesis and the creation story of Adam and Eve, those echoes are hard to ignore that we're back in a garden that we're back with God and humanity in a garden, but not as two different people, but as the one person. We're told that Jesus is really this new Adam. And it's the first day of the week, is, isn't this comment of just to tell you what time of the week it was, but it's a theological point to say that what happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ was in fact a new beginning for humanity. It was a new day. What had previously never been before possible was now possible because of what Jesus had done. So what seemed like the ending of the story was in fact a beginning of the story, the story that you and I still live in today. And as we come to the book of Acts that was so beautifully read, Acts is like the second part, the sequel, the now what of Jesus's resurrection. It's the second part of Luke's gospel. And we begin to discover what Jesus was doing, what he'd um, brought for us. And that we find in this moment that was so beautifully read that Jesus' disciples, including his female followers, they're gathered, they're praying, and they're praying for God to come. See, Jesus had been resurrected and before he ascended to the Father, he said to his disciples in Acts 1, wait, wait for me. Wait for the Spirit of God to come. The Father has promised that he will send his Spirit, wait. And so here they are gathered like we're gathered today, praying, seeking God and asking him to come. And then we have this moment 
this powerful moment where language seems to fail us. It's like, what's going on? There's like fire and wind and it's hard to even find words to describe because the presence of God showed up. And when God shows up, language fails us. God moves in a powerful way amongst these unschooled, uneducated, normal people and transforms the course of history. This moment here has often been described as the birth of the church. It's the beginning of what you and I are a part of today. Now what's so amazing about what would go on to happen if you were to read the book of Acts and, and look at the early church history is that even though the Roman Empire tried to kill Jesus, and then even though they went on to kill most of the names that you hear in the book of Acts of Jesus' disciples, they all ended up being killed, martyred. Even though the Roman Empire sought to do that, they couldn't kill the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Because it wasn't a kingdom of man. It was the kingdom of God. And over the next 300 years, something phenomenal happens that historians and sociologists still can't get their head around. The kingdom of God spread. What they tried to kill only grew. So much so that within 300 years, Christianity would eventually become the religion of the empire that tried to destroy it. It's a phenomenon. People can't get their heads around that would happen, how that would happen. In fact, there's um, a historian called Tom Holland who wrote a book called Dominion, the, Way the Making of the Western Mind. It was a Sunday Times bestseller. And he was um, an agnostic Christian, uh, not an agnostic Christian, he was an agnostic historian. That would be interesting. Um, he was an agnostic historian whose interest in, um, those, in Christianity was purely a historical interest. And he began to, as he studied Christianity in Western history, he discovered that the emergence of Christianity was the single most transformative development in Western history. And there's kind of, it's a, a big book, but some of the headlines that he kind of discovered as a historian looking at the story of the church that began in this moment in Acts 2. He said that Christianity was a revolutionary and transformative force that fundamentally changed the course of Western history. This idea of human equality and the intrinsic value of every individual, that originated in Christian teaching, in the teaching of Jesus and in the lives of the first Christians. This concept of human rights, of the right to life and liberty, has at its roots the teaching of Jesus. He traces how Christianity played a key role in the development of science and art and literature and inspired many of the greatest achievements that our world has seen. So in the same way, like the shifting of tectonic plates in the Earth's foundation can cause a tsunami through our oceans, so too the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was like a shifting in the Earth's foundation, in the Earth's history that caused a tsunami of change to ripple throughout this world and throughout our history. So much so that secular, agnostic, atheist historians look back and go, oh my gosh, what was that? And what happened hasn't finished. This wave that began that Jesus set off through doing something as crazy as dying for us and making relationship with God possible, something as crazy as defeating death itself, this wave is still building and still growing and still moving. And it's, it's what we're a part of today. It's his church, his body, his bride, his family. And it all began here 
in Acts 2, a gathering of ordinary people, a gathering like this, where the Spirit of God came. Just the other morning, I was eating um, breakfast with my uh, four-year-old Flurry, and I was having a boiled egg. Anyone a fan of a boiled egg? Love a boiled egg. Who just said that? Did you say that? I love a boiled egg? No. All right, you don't love a boiled egg. Anyway, I was enjoying my boiled egg, and um, Flurry just turned to me, and she said, um, Mummy, do you know um, chicks come from eggs? And I'm literally like, oh, I don't like where this conversation is going. <coughs> and she said, um, she said, but isn't it amazing like, how did they put the egg back together so neatly after they took the chick out? I'd put my spoon down. I felt convicted to be a vegetarian again. And I just said, you know, Flory, that is a great question. And at the um, end of this passage that we read in Acts 2 verse 12, we see amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, they say, what does this mean? And that's a great question. What does this all mean? And that's the question I want us to think about. What does it mean that we find ourselves part of this movement that began 2,000 years ago? What does any of this mean as I go home for lunch for a boiled egg or avocado on toast? What does this mean as I turn up to work tomorrow? What does this mean for my marriage, for my family, for my future? What does any of this mean? What's it got to do with me? Firstly, what it means is it's a profound change to the way in which we relate to God. It meant a profound change in the way you can relate to God. See, as we know in the Old Testament, we see this um, of how the people of God related to God through uh, the sacrificial system, through following the law, through the temple, through priests and through prophets. But what we have going on here is Jesus' resurrection unleashing the presence of God for all people, in all places. To destroy the power of sin in our lives, to bridge the divide between us and God, to bridge the divide between heaven and earth. This was always God's desire that we would walk in closest possible relationship with Him. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes the church in this way and describes what Jesus had made possible by saying this in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile the both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access. He's talking about Jews and non-Jews. We both now have access. All of us have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And this bit's key. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This was radical. 
that no longer you had to go to a religious or sacred space. No longer did you have to go to a, another sacrificial system or the temple over there to encounter God, to know relationship with God. But that God had come to meet you. This language in Acts 2 of the presence of God coming like wind, like fire, it resonates with every account we see of God filling the temple in the Old Testament. It's the same language, the same picture. But now we realize there's a new sort of temple. It's us. Jesus is our priest. He is our sacrifice. The Lord doesn't blow through buildings. He blows through people. So what is the meaning of this? It means that you can experience God in a way that was never before possible. It means you can experience the presence, the nearness and the love of God like Jesus Christ did. Can you imagine the kind of relationship Jesus had with the Father? He was without sin, never separated from God. He enjoyed such a closeness and an intimacy with God. That's what you can know. Not because you're perfect, not because of what you have achieved, because of what Jesus has achieved for you. You now become a temple of the living God. Um, my parents um, weren't Christians and I didn't grow up going to church. Um, and I actually first ever went to church when I was 13 to a Friday night youth group. And I went with the promise of KFC afterwards. Um, but I stayed in the end slightly more for Jesus. Um, but I remember coming home one night and telling my dad that I'd started going to church. And my dad like sat me down and he wanted to have a chat. Now, my dad had never done that about anything. Like, and I tried drugs, I'd done all sorts. My dad was not bothered. But when I went to church, it was like, uh, sit down, we need a little conversation here. So he sat me down, he said, look, you know, your, your interest in God, that's a good thing. You know, my dad was um, kind of like a hippie in the 60s. He's had a life of sex, drugs, rock and roll. Like he believed in God, but he was very free and anti-like establishment and stuff. So he said, you know, wanting to find God and purpose and meaning and understand why we're here is really, really, really good. But he said, you'll never find God in the four walls of a church. He was like, God is too big, too wild. He cannot be contained, which my dad was right. But he said, you'll never find God in the four walls of a church. But for me, that's exactly what happened. I experienced the presence of God in an undeniable way, in a way that I'd gently engaged with Buddhism and it hadn't worked. I gently engaged with drugs and it hadn't worked. I gently engaged with all sorts of praying in fields, doing all random spiritualist stuff. I'd never experienced God like the way I had in a church with people praying, worshiping and singing the name of Jesus. And was it because the church building was special? No. But because like in Acts 2, I was with people who were following Jesus and seeking him. And for whatever reason, reasons I still don't understand, God just seems to turn up when we do that. A few months after I'd started um, going to church, I'd, I felt I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I had so many experiences of just knowing God in here. And um, I then got baptized. And then shortly after my mum died of cancer, I remember going through this season of deep questioning of my faith, questioning every experience I'd had, questioning whether God was real. And everything about that season would have been so much easier if I could have just been an atheist. It would have been so much easier. Because then I wouldn't have to wrestle with the questions. Then I'd know why what had happened had happened. But I couldn't deny God's presence. 
I couldn't deny how he'd showed up in my life. Sometimes like those Acts 2 moments of just feeling like language can't even describe what I'm feeling and other times experiencing the presence of God and the quietness and stillness of a hospital bed. And those moments following in a funeral and those moments alone at home where the presence of God came in a gentle and quiet way. I couldn't deny God's presence. And in that time, and to be honest, ever since, the church became a refuge for me. It became a place I felt I had to be, I had to go. I remember trying to rely on Sunday buses to get to church, absolute nightmare. But I felt I had to be there because I knew God would meet me there. Sometimes it meant hiding in the toilets because it was too painful to be in worship. And sometimes it meant sobbing on the floor. Sometimes it meant coldly just wondering where God is. But more often than not, it was the place where I encountered his presence. And it's changed my life. Someone once said that the church is not a select circle of the immaculate, but a home where the outcast may come in. It's not a palace with gate attendants holding off at arm's length the stranger, but rather a hospital where the brokenhearted may be healed and where all the weary and troubled might find rest and take counsel together. The presence of God is why we're here. It's why we still meet 2,000 years later. It's the purpose of the church. We're supposed to be the place where God can move freely and meet people where they're at. When we gather, we should expect that God will be in our midst. Yes, sometimes like blowing of wind or fire and other times in the stillness and in the quiet. Why? Because that's what he promised. That's what Jesus came to unleash upon the earth. And I'll be honest, if if we're not here for the presence of God, then I'd rather have some other hobbies. I like hockey, you know. If this is all just a figment of my imagination, this God stuff, this forgiveness stuff, this freedom stuff, then I'd rather be off having brunch. As I'm sure you're all aware, I love my food. But if when we gather, the presence of God is here, then anything's possible. If when we gather together, the presence of God is here, it means I've got a chance at being healed from the brokenness of losing my mum. If when we gather, the presence of God is here, then it means I've got a chance at working through forgiving my dad who struggled to be a father after that. If the presence of God is here, it means that I can find forgiveness and freedom from all that shame from those things that I've done, from those habits that I've had that maybe I haven't even been able to be honest with others about. If the presence of God is here, then it means the possibility of allowing the truth of who God says I am to come in and to displace the lies that I often believe about myself. If the presence of God is here, then maybe I can have hope about my future. Maybe I can have peace despite the storm that rages. If the presence of God is here, then there's no way else. I'd rather be on a Sunday. Lord, would you give us a hunger for your presence like we've never known? 
Would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the possibility of you moving in our midst like we've never seen before? What Jesus started, what happened in Acts 2, didn't just build and then dapper off. The presence of God can come in new and powerful ways all the time. What God is doing amongst you here, he's only just getting started. So what does this mean? It means you're not alone. It means you can know the power and the presence of God in your life, no matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter what you're going through. But secondly, it means you're part of a new family. The second part of the passage we read, it says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. They said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. See, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit wasn't just about restoring our relationship to God, but also our relationship with one another. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit being poured out across the divides of gender, of race, of culture. Even across religion. This wasn't a movement just for the people of God, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. It was a movement of God for all people. See, this moment here, this birth of the church is the birth of a new family. What Paul described in Ephesians 2 is this one new humanity. What we have going on in Acts 2 is this undoing of Babel. Undoing where language had been a thing of division. We have the Spirit moving to bring unity amongst his people where previously there'd been divisions. So it means you're not alone because the presence of God is with you, but also because these lot are with you. Jesus doesn't just give us his presence, he gave us one another. He gave us the church. See, this community in Acts 2, these followers of Jesus filled with the presence of God grew to become a multi-ethnic, radically countercultural community in which every person had worth. And as we read the book of Acts, we discover the early church embodied a self-sacrificial love, the kind of love that Jesus had shown, a generosity, a hospitality, an equality that was radically countercultural to anything else around it. That's what Tom Holland points at. He goes, how, how are these people like this? And the influence that they went on to have on society. And this is what we're called to live out. See, the church is not a building any more than Andy, Florian, Addy are a building to me. The church is you. The church is a family that the Spirit unites. After my mum passed away, I left home about 17 after things with my dad had become quite difficult. And everything I'd known, my family that had been a very, very happy family, completely disintegrated and felt broken. And in that season, I experienced the church as my family in a very, very real way. Not a spiritual, oh, we're brothers and sisters, ooh, but a real, they're my family. Just the other night, I was chopping an onion and I realised it was Sarah from church who taught me how to chop an onion in a way that didn't make me cry or chop my fingers off. And that's the same Sarah who... She'd just been married to Dave and I rang her up and said, can I stay at your house one night? I need a place to stay. And one night became three years. They took me in. Dave taught me how to budget and do finances. I think of Sue who taught me how to make gravy. I think of Janet who used to take me for Friday fish and chips. 
I think of Russ and Sarah who invited me round to decorate their Christmas tree with them as a family. And I could go on listing names of normal people who in normal ways showed me what it meant to be a daughter and a sister, even though I had absolutely nothing to offer them. They made the love of God visible to me in a season of my life when I was struggling to believe in it. And this is nothing new. That's just the church being the church. It's what we've done since Acts 2, ensuring the vulnerable are cared for, the hungry are fed, the poor are clothed, the broken find a refuge. Those who've messed up find a second chance. This is the church. This is the family we're called to. And the church community is probably the most dysfunctional, diverse, difficult, but stunningly beautiful family you could ever be a part of. I want to ask you today, what would it look like for church not to be something we attend to consume, but a family we realise we're part of? What would it look like for us to turn up for people, to go beyond placebo relationships? Wouldn't that be amazing for our community, for our world to see?